Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. And I've been saying this lately that I'm really emphasizing the conversation part uh, of the program. Um, While I do love to interview people and to, you know, uh, draw out uh, ideas and experiences from uh, an interesting cast of characters. It's indeed one of the reasons I do this show. Um, I also like to throw in my own uh, perspectives because in the end, I think uh, part of what I'm doing is trying to model conversations uh, more than extract information from uh, interviewees. And so keep that in mind and uh, hopefully it works for you. Um, the topic of today's conversation uh, is motivated by a number of things. Um, one is I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sort of finalizing my, uh, mo- mo- my rough draft, or more than rough draft, the main draft, the beautiful, perfect, doesn't need any more work draft version of my uh, uh, next book, High Weirdness. And there's a lot in there about Robert Anton Wilson, uh, who has a certain very interesting style of skepticism that is both uh, familiar to people who are mostly thinking about skeptics in the modern kind of atheistic scientific defender sense. Uh, but in other ways, his skepticism is very uh, opposed to those kinds of uh, uh, positions, or at least the kind of uh, arrogance and, and sort of rationalist uh, uh, superiority that goes along with a lot of uh, contemporary skepticism. So it's it sent me off in a, in a little philosophical, historical uh, uh, rabbit hole about the origins of skepticism, which is indeed what we're going to be talking about uh, partly today. Um, but there are more broad reasons to be interested in, in this topic. Um, one of them is the aforementioned uh, kind of atheist skeptics. Uh, as someone who's interested in a lot of uh, fringe topics, uh, the paranormal, uh, psychic experience, mystical experience, psychedelics, occultism, you know, indigenous realities, you name it. Um, if you're into these kinds of things, inevitably you're going to spend some time butting heads with uh, arrogant skeptics who, um, in the name of a certain kind of skepticism, uh, you know, uh, criticize uh, a whole, whole variety of things. And we might, um, uh, you know, have, there's good reasons for a lot of those uh, questions. And yet, from the perspective of someone who's interested, open-minded, but critical uh, about a lot of this stuff, uh, contemporary skepticism often looks uh, extremely narrow and actually rather fundamentalist in its uh, sort of assumption that the axioms of science and rationality are as uh, cut and dried as they want to uh, pretend. Uh, so that's a feature. And then the third one is a very different sense of what we mean by skeptical, which is really has to do with doubt and the fact that so, so many people these days are, are overwhelmed with different forms of doubt and skepticism about the sources of information they're reading. So increasingly people are distrustful of the news. They're distrustful of, uh, of scientific bodies. They're trust, distrustful of climate change. Uh, they're distrustful of NASA. And indeed, one of the reasons that we've seen an explosion of conspiracy theories and, and a kind of mainstreaming of conspiracy theories is because it's just more and more pervasive. It's more and more conventional for people to distrust, even radically doubt, uh, sources of information and authority that even a generation ago people would, would you know, maybe have quibbled with, but they would have not thought fundamentally that 
the New York Times is totally a lie, that when the climate scientists gather, they're actually lying. Uh, that kind of distrust, that kind of doubt, though different than, uh, you know, the Richard Dawkins style of skepticism, does actually raise a broader problem. And uh, the, the problem can be said sort of simply, which is that it sometimes feels as if people today feel like they're discovering the possibilities of skepticism for the first time. It's like modern people are the ones who have come to doubt uh, sources of authority like, like science or newspapers, or only modern people are the ones who doubt supernatural claims and uh, mystical uh, accounts. Uh, but it actually seems a lot of the time that people are just not very good at their skepticism. So what I thought I'd do this uh, time is bring on my my friend uh, uh, Dustin Atlas. Uh, we've had on the show before and uh, one of my favorite interlocutors, especially about philosophy and the history of philosophy. And just to talk informally, but, you know, with some detail about uh, the history of skepticism and, and, and the different ways in which uh, radical doubt was uh, deployed for very different ends uh, in, in the ancient world and, and uh, hopefully get to some stuff in the early modern period before uh, bringing it back into the present. So with no further ado, Dustin, thanks for uh, joining me again on Expanding Mind. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, you know, again, you and I were talking about this. It, it seems like, you know, skepticism people associate with a very modern point of view. And if you think about the ancient world, you might think about, uh, you know, uh, metaphysics, you know, people claims about the, the ultimate reality of being or uh, uh, logical arguments about how to think and and more positive forms. That is a lot of what we kind of learn if we're if we're learning like a basic history of philosophy course that we that we think about in terms of antiquity. But at the same time, there were all these characters that have a much more modern feel. They're doubters, they're skeptics, they're uh, questioning the presumptions of metaphysics, they're interested in naturalist accounts of the, of the world, they're very, they have very uh, skeptical views of how much we can actually know. Um, so w can you talk about where that kind of attitude comes from or, or who I are mean, some of the figures that really we should be thinking about when we're looking at the origins of these attitudes? Yeah, I mean... Sure. I'm not an expert here, and I'm cribbing a lot from this uh, Professor Renata Ziminska. I, I'm going to mispronounce a lot of names today, but her, she has there's a lot of really lazy research about skepticism, and hers, hers is quite excellent. The problem is it's usually done by philosophers who are mostly interested in philosophical problems. And there's that's sort of useful, but it's a bit of a problem because... Um, a lot of ancient philosophy veers close to sort of a religious or spiritual practice. And if you view it as a series of problems, you, you maybe miss the point. But anyway, so like the word skepticism, or uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce the various Greek forms, is in, say, Homer. And it, and it means like I look or I research. Um, but what you described as the sort of questioning of the limits of knowledge uh, you see already even just say someone like Socrates, it, it's, it's very, um, you know, his, his, I, all I know is I don't know anything, whatever the famous song goes. Um, so you, and, and you see, in actually a lot of the pre-Socratics, these sorts of moves, but you don't really see, I guess what we'd call full throated skepticism until about the third century BC, maybe fourth. Um, 
you know, fourth century BC. What's weird about it is, I mean, I, those of us who had to suffer through a kind of conventional um, Greek philosophy class, you're not really taught much about this. You sort of go straight from Plato to Aristotle to the Stoics and the Epicureans, but between Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics and the Epicureans, you have the skeptics and the cynics come out. And um, actually many of them looked, uh, Epicurus in particular looked to Pyrrho, who, who I guess we'll talk about for a moment. Um, who was, I guess, your first full-blooded skeptic. And that th where I would say he's a bit different is whereas most of his predecessors were very comfortable saying knowledge is a very difficult thing or knowledge is a very limited thing or knowledge has uh, is extremely bounded by our own weakness and ignorance. He basically just says something along the lines of, like, knowledge does not exist. I mean, you, you, you will not have it. It, it cannot happen. And... and Although there's something modern about it, there's also something not modern about it because I think very few modern or contemporary people are, are are willing to go as far as the ancient skeptics were. They're very impressive, very radical. Yeah. Um, well, let's people. let's let's dig in a, a little bit more. Um, one of the things that's associated uh, uh, with ancient skepticism is this idea of the epoche or the epoch. I'm not pronounced sure. Again, we're going to blow the... Uh, uh, I, th I think the first... I think I remember the epoche, but... Okay, yes. epoche. So, let's do that. Let's go so with the you, epoche. So, th so this, this sort of um, suspension of judgment, and here maybe just for the rest of the time we're talking, we, we can sort of make a division here. So if you, if you view all skepticism as a kind of suspension of judgment, like... You're not saying I, I don't see this. I, like one of the examples that Piro uses is, or no, Sextus. I'm talking about Piro uses is he says, okay, I, I taste the honey and it tastes sweet. But what I'm not going to say is that it is sweet, right? I, sure, it tastes sweet. That's fine. But I'm not going to, I'm going to suspend my judgment about what honey actually is. Um, I'm not going to pretend I'm not tasting it. I'm not going to be delusional, but I'm not going to like make any claims. And this isn't just about the news or politics or metaphysics. This is about everything. And you, we can sort of divide into two groups from the beginning, and we can keep sort of hammering away at this division because I think it's maybe useful. You've got people who are looking for epoche intellectually, which is where I think most contemporary people who fancy themselves skeptics would put themselves. They suspend their judgment. And this is a kind of, I would say, sort of weak skepticism. And then there's this much stronger form which, and I don't mean stronger like better, I mean stronger like it's much more thoroughgoing, where the goal of the suspension of judgment was a sort of spiritual practice. Um, and the goal was ataraxia or, or peace. And this is and this is the difference between the academic skeptics of the past and the academic skeptics of today, really, insofar yeah, as they yeah. left over, and the, and the full skeptics. And the skeptics themselves, um, their goal was a kind of peace, uh, yeah. And suspension of judgment was it was a way of achieving this peace. So what, one thing I was just just popping to mind is is the about the the life of, of Puro, who's one of the the founders of or kind of considered the founder of skepticism, is that he he went with Alexander to the east, and so he was hanging around in India and hanging out with what they called the gymnosophists. Uh, and the Magi, you know, there were those guys hanging around. So it was one of these uh, melting point uh, moments. And, 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 you know, if one of the things we don't hear about these guys in conventional histories of philosophy, we also don't hear about the way that Greek thought was embedded in all sorts of relations with other 
places, Egypt, uh, Babylon, and, and indeed India. And one of the interesting things, and if, if, if it sounds kind of obscure, why, you know, why are we talking about these, old, these guys, suspension of judgment, uh, peace, how does all this stuff fit together? Well, one very easy way of kind of uh, helping to explain it in, in modern terms is that there are extremely tight connections between ancient skepticism with Puro, but also later on with Sextus you were talking about. And one of the most important uh, moves in Buddhist philosophy, which is called the Madhyamaka, associated with the great uh, sage Nagarjuna. And there are incredible similarities between these, these two schools, both of which have similar methods. You know, one of the things they're trying to do is to say, look, any positive claim of knowledge can be shown to be uh, absurd or empty or the same thing as its contrary. And they would use these sort of tricks like the reductio ad absurdum to show the relativism that's underlying what seems to be absolute statements. So there's a kind of similarity there. But what's also similar is that what the goal was, that the goal was not to uh, say that, you know, nothing exists or nothing is meaningful, there's nothing to do, but rather to, in a way, burn out the mind's desire to conceptualize and to argue and to build uh, castles in the in the sky so that something like reality as such could be uh communed with or or experienced um so yeah there no, was totally. this practice so we, dimension so we have this weird thing and, and i mean the thing is that i'm not a historian at all but it's important to see that this this trip to india with alexander it's it's part of the story the Greeks are telling themselves about themselves. This isn't some, so these trips to the East, which you see again and again in philosophical stories, the Greeks themselves thought it was a good idea to record these and tell these stories. So it's not just some historian reconstructing or attempting to create relevance. Uh, when you read Diogenes Laertius, if I'm pronouncing his name right, which I'm probably not because half of these names I've only seen in print. Um, this is one of the very first things he says about Pyrrho. It's like Pyrrho went to India and that's what led him to adopt his noble philosophy, as he puts it, taking the form of agnosticism and suspension of judgment. And he, he has this great line. He says, he denied that anything was honorable or dishonorable, just or unjust. And so universally yelled that there's nothing really existent but custom and convention govern human action. For no single thing is in itself any more this than that. Now, I mean, there's a lot of these crazy lines you can you can you can spend all day with um but yeah so so the greeks themselves and the the thing is is pyrrho doesn't write anything down which you know a lot of these founding figures don't write things down and especially a lot of them clearly model themselves after this sort of socratic example but they just live a certain kind of ethical life and then their students write down what they want to want them to have said or something along those lines but uh, it doesn't mean it's all wrong because obviously other people are reading whatever you write about this guy and uh, the, you know the, the, there's there's a sort of correction or error correction going on there but yeah so certainly the the, the the skeptics themselves felt very strongly about this trip to india as sort of foundational for there, their philosophy there's another detail about him that that really struck me because again like you were saying he didn't write anything down so he wasn't sitting there trying to be like a you, you know, a, a teacher uh, in a conventional sense, um, but he was sort of demonstrating his philosophy in the way that he led his life. And the story you get uh, from Diogenes is that he 
Um, he would just kind of ignore all warning signs. He would just bumble into whatever was happening. He wouldn't try to control uh, things in advance. So he wasn't trying to stay out of harm's way. If, you know, if the, if the lion was there, he'd just like keep walking or whatever. Uh, and then his friends, his followers would like tag along and make sure he didn't get into trouble. Which yeah, so is this, story has a, this story has a weird history. So because he doubts everything, including his senses, you have this sort of temptation to view him as this kind of bumbling idiot from who's like overly drunk on eastern wisdom which you know is is a good story but then even the diogenes story ends with he lived to be nearly 90 right that's the very last line in that paragraph and and again like other guys afterwards bring it up and they're like ah so maybe this one isn't true because they're just I don't know. I, I, you can never tell when they're trying to be funny or not, but there is this sort of, you know, if he was a full skeptic, he, in the sense that you're he describes and you're like, maybe he would walk in front of a car, but then, you know, they're like, okay, but he lives to be 98. How, how does, how does that happen? Um, Wait, but, but I, I want to ask you one thing you, you said about how he doubts even the senses. And this is the part where this actually resembles something that the, that Robert Anton Wilson talks about a lot is that one way of saying what the skeptics were trying to be skeptical about was they were skeptical about the capacity of language to match phenomenal reality. So the idea that you could describe something, that you could explain something, and that there was some kind of correspondence between your language and phenomenal reality. And if you think that's not true, and then you use your skeptical tools to undermine language, undermine the claims of language, there's still room left there for something like experience or phenomena as they are or uh the the honey is sweet the honey tastes sweet my tongue my honey my my, this this honey tastes sweet that's That's fine but that's as far as you can go so there is that that's one of the things i think is charming about them and that again is is not unlike people who practice buddhism or have thought a lot about buddhism the same kind of problem there's some gesture towards a pure experience or an experience without thought or experience without language and that you can practice to kind of get there and this is one of the ways of getting there is to deconstruct all of the assertions in language uh, that are in the way but there's still a space left for something like you know, uh, showing up for reality as it is, uh, without all these kinds of, uh, projections. Um, yeah. I'd be careful about assuming that the ancient Greek, ancient thinkers had like a, this refined and understanding of language, but certainly the, the rest of it. Yeah. Sounds totally right to me that there, there is a kind of pure practice here without any sort of theory, uh, even as late as, um, Sextus, he, he divides this shit up where he says, um, you know, you got three groups of people. You got the dogmatists; they think they know stuff. This is Aristotle, obviously the big, the big kind of villain. Then you have the academics who, um, who, who, who claim that you can't know, anything. Um, and then you have the skeptics who, who are still looking. And so the skeptics have this. Like I said, the etymology has the, it refers to looking, and you have this weird thing where they actually, and this is a major dividing line the ancient skeptic refuses to even say i can't know anything because that's a statement of fact right they this sort of loop which people think is very clever um you know you still if you read the stanford encyclopedia to philosophy with skepticism or you, or you read a lot of texts there's a lot of people who are very proud of themselves 
for noticing that the claim I can't know anything is a claim and therefore skepticism self-refutes. But these ancient guys aren't idiots. So they already know this, right? And so for them, they're like, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm still looking, right? Um, well, that's this that, idea of, of, of inquiry, which is one of the yeah. ways they, they talk about it. And it's an interesting problem because, again, some accounts of skeptics say, well, obviously this just leads to a kind of nihilism. You, you, don't, you can't believe anything, so you're going to stop looking. Maybe you just pursue enjoyable experiences or just check out or whatever. But there, there's some other evidence that there, there's still this kind of emphasis on seeking, on inquiry as itself a path without any belief of any kind of possible resolution or solution to it, which again, I find to be a, a rather admirable position, particularly when you think about today and the way in which we're simultaneously assaulted with all of this information. We know that there's tons of propaganda and, and media games and bots and bullshit like surrounding all everything we're trying to figure out about the world. So, so unless we're really happy just giving up trying, then we are still seeking, we're still looking, we're still searching, but at the same time, without having a, a really radical sense of how relative our knowledge is, uh, I think we're also kind of missing the point. So I, I find that aspect of the, the kind of uh, endless search uh, it's for however sis Sisyphean it seems, um, also kind of admirable. Well, it's it's really romantic, and and that's maybe its strength and its weakness. I don't think many people can actually be skeptics. I mean, I don't think I have this guts for it myself. It's a little, it's a bit too intense. It's hard to know how you would do. It's pretty basic bourgeois. Look, I mean, let's say something like this. Um, it's not that skepticism creates this sorts of forms of relativism. It's a reaction to them, right? I mean, the the the, the real. Um, I would say skepticism from my limited knowledge. I'd want to say something like this. Skepticism comes out of sophistry and this sort of radical relativism that you already see. A lot of people sort of think of skepticism opening the door to relativism, but I think at least historically it's the other way around. First, you have relativism of truth claims, and then you have skepticism. And you see this in you know multicultural cities throughout the throughout history. The people who grow up in sort of insular communities, and suddenly they're stuck... I'm not saying Athens was multicultural. Well, like you see this this repeated in Iraq or other places where, in the Middle Ages, where suddenly all these different types of people are together, different religious systems, different family systems, and you have this relativism take over. And then a very common sort of reaction to this is, you know what, I, I obviously just don't know anything. Um, and it's a, it's a natural reaction. And I think it's a very healthy reaction. It's just a really hard reaction to pull off. And so, again, I'm sort of sticking and pretending that thinking follows history here, but the, the Epicureanism and Stoicism are kind of, again, very anachronistically, they're sort of bourgeois ways of taming um, cynicism and skepticism, Absolutely. Which, are these, which are these very radical ways of, of being in the world. And then some, you know, and they're like, I'm throwing away all my crap. I don't believe in anything. And the Stoic is like, I'm not going to throw my TV out but I'll act as if I didn't have it. It's a very, it's a very convenient way of looking at the world. And it's really, there, a lot of us are much closer to Stoicism or Epicureanism than we are to. No, I think that's uh, true. I, but I, I guess what it is, is that what I like about the skeptics is, is like hidden in this term that people use in a, ver in a very different way today is this kind of radicalism. And this radicalism is, it is while difficult if not impossible to actually live from, um, although I'd like to leave that open as a possibility, uh, it, it nonetheless forces us to 
you know, kind of get down to brass tacks about how far you can take this kind of sensibility. Because I think you're, 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 you're very right is that often skepticism is used as part of the art of a way of contesting supernatural claims or mystical claims, metaphysical claims in the name of a more naturalist way of being in the world. But there's still this way that it's you can you can uh, uh, save or sort of uh, defend um, things that allow you to just sort of keep enjoying your regular life. But that's again why the connection with Madhyamaka and, and Buddhism is so important because even if we don't really have that many good models of classical skeptics, we do have at least a lot of literature of uh, people who um, live with, who, who attempt to manifest a similar kind of radical doubt in a positive spiritual practice. I mean, a lot of, you know, the the attitudes of Zen, philosophically, what lie behind those attitudes in terms of the literature and the philosophy that is setting up what we think about as, you know, Zen, which is, of course, complicated, many different things to say, but nonetheless is that it comes out of the same Madhyamaka philosophy, which is designed to basically subvert the law of the excluded middle is basically to get down to this sort of logical point and go no you can't say that here's why it doesn't work and if you really take that seriously suddenly everything like all bets are off yeah that sounds right like it look it's a very radical position and and i today just in preparation for this i went and read like to skeptic.com, et cetera, et cetera, just to see what people these days were using the term to mean. We, we can talk about that later, but it's actually kind of like grotesque how, how easy contemporary skepticism is in comparison to, to ancient skepticism, which is, I mean, yeah, whether it's doable or not, it's, it's an admirable and very um, radical position. Um, probably too radical for me i think i'm just too much of a coward to uh to ever well no i mean it it, it would require overthrowing a lot of things that i'm very attached to um and yeah i think i think the buddhist connection i mean i don't know enough but i i, I think that's where you're going to find a lot of your models i mean i think the few zen texts i've read are much more sophisticated in terms of their metaphysics partially because the the opponent is, is quite different right i mean the the skeptic is setting themselves up against uh a very specific form of, of, of philosophy. Um, and I mean, the, the question I had when I was reading this stuff is why wasn't I taught any of this in school? And I think the reason is, is cause you can't really teach it in school. Um, because in school, schools will tend towards this sort of academic, I mean, literally the, the academic position where you're going to deal with this as an argument. The skeptic is an argument and the skeptical argument is something like there, there is no truth or there is no knowledge. Actually, it's probably a better way of putting it. Like knowledge doesn't exist. And this is the academic position. And this, you know, not only does it undermine literally everything you're trying to do in school, um, it actually just doesn't work. Right. The actual skeptical position has to be a, a person. And there seem to be aware of that, um, even in the tradition, there's always these references to very specific people and the ethical lives they lived and, and how they lived as their kind of exemplar, more than there is a reference to just arguments once you leave the academic uh, position. It's, it's, yeah, so practice is very important. So I think yeah. that's where you're going to end up closer to these sorts of Buddhist positions that you're, you're yeah, describing. Yeah, I think, I think actually one of the great gifts of, of, 
Buddhism in the West meaning, and people, you know, engaging with Asian traditions in the historical text, but also dealing with them as practices that it's helped us review what ancient Greece was like, uh, you know, and especially the, through the ideas of Pierre Hado, the idea of, of philosophy as a way of life. And it really transforms our, your whole vision of, of what these guys are on about and also the value of, of reading it because it becomes more intimate because some of the a lot of the of the ideas, the steps, the the opponents, the different schools that emerge are are relevant if if you, if you translate them into into modern terms. But I wanted to add, uh, throw in a different question here, which is one of the things that you find with the the general uh, strategies of skepticism is that they can be connected to two very different aims. One is that you are you believe in some mystical higher reality. And you distrust rationalism. You distrust, uh, you know, logical metaphysics. And so you use skeptical arguments to undermine the kind of rational claims, science, let's say. And you do so in light of a, of a higher truth, of, of a, a God beyond arguments, or perhaps in contemporary terms, a totally batshit conspiracy theory. So you can use skepticism to mock or undermine the authority or find contradictions in all sorts of conventional accounts of something because you have some higher commitment to the moon landing was fake or some other, the earth is flat or whatever it is. So it's yes. actually kind of a similar, move and that's very different than using skepticism to clarify and yeah and so let, let's say there's like there's three groups here we've got this this ancient group and like we can put them to the side but it's just important to remember that sure. they're like hardcore people living in the past who are, are really going all the way with this as far as they can and they're inspiring a number of meta philosophical movements that we're still dealing with. I mean, and, and they, they grow out of the sophists and they grow out of the philosophical tradition quite organically. They even take over the Platonic Academy for some time. So the Plato's Academy, they're a bunch of skeptics for some time, kind of boring group as you'd expect, but whatever. Then we've got the modern macho bullying skeptic nonsense. And then on the other side, their opponents are also, yeah, use a lot of these skeptical arguments as you're saying. And, so while I've sort of outed myself as maybe too cowardly to <laughs> ever actually be an ancient skeptic, my, my, my response, as is usually my response to things when I, when I deal with these contemporary skeptical arguments, is like, you're not going far enough. Like, if you really want to do this, like, let's, let's see how far we can go. And yeah, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people who are very willing to undermine, use skepticism just to undermine knowledge in order to... Um, well, make way for faith. Uh, you see it in Al-Ghazali, you see it in Kant, you see it all over the place. And, and the Middle Ages is just rife, later especially, with this sort of position. But even I've, I've argued with the evangelicals who will, this is sort of the move, right? Something along the lines of, uh, well, you can't be sure of this, you can't be sure of that. And then, you know, once they've destabilized you, like, oh, but there is one thing that, like, can save you from all of this doubt that I just manufactured, right? <laughs> um and this is, you know, this is, it's a smart system. You, 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 you undermine someone and then you tell them, you know, by the way, there's a way out and maybe it's absurd, but it will get rid of all this crippling anxiety I've, um, I've created. And I, you know, I, I, th this is where you can, I can be quite suspicious of any sort of attempt at, at inculcating doubt. I, I, and are people who are proud of their doubt, 
Um, it, it's, it's often a mechanism. And yeah, we can start with these sort of the religious or the, 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 the not, I don't want to call it just religious because it's, it's used by a lot of people, including, you know, conspiracy theorists. We, we, we've discussed this in the past, you know. I doubt the media. Okay, well, where do where do you find out, like, you doubt all the media? No, you, you doubt, quote unquote, their media. I doubt, you know, no one ever really doubts everything. Well, not no one, but it, it's very hard to do. And it's often very convenient when someone stops doubting and starts believing. And it usually, you know, allows them to support a series of unsupported um, claims, beliefs, usually kind of despicable ones, um, sometimes weird ones. Uh, and I think sometimes just the, the high of undermining things and then reasserting things people enjoy. Like, you know, I don't, you might have more insight into this sort of flat earth thing than I do. But at this point, it seems almost like there's a pleasure being taken in oh, the definitely. argument itself and in pissing people off. You know, there's a kind of uh, joy oh, yeah. in it. Which I get. I mean, there's, there's, I, I, I'm kind of perverse. I, I understand, like, you know, I wish I could do that. I mean, I'd like to be able to tell people with full faith that I thought the world was flat and watch their heads explode. I think that would make me feel important. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's weird, these sort of half, half assed skepticisms. And, um, and even still, they can be done well or they can be done poorly. I mean, not, you could argue nominalism is a kind of um, a version of this sort of thing. Like, as you said before, kind of refusing to trust the ability of language to articulate anything. And, you know, this is a powerful position. And so, so let's, uh, let's say that, that there's a, there's a reason that we're talking about this stuff today. There's a reason that people are wrestling with doubt, the, the conditions we're in, the conditions of the media, the, the state of philosophy, the state of, of hope, uh, there's a lot of reasons that people are are kind of wrangling with these issues, and and what you know if they're paying attention, then it's like what media sources. If they're not paying attention, then they're developing these habits of like, oh, I'm going to disbelieve all of this, and I can tell you why. You know, this is clear that these are crisis actors because there's this contradiction here, and you know, using reason to to analyze and deconstruct you know media claims, and then in this very non-reflective way you know oh this is the truth there are these crisis actors they're doing it from here this is that you can see the same ones here they are they come back blah 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 so we see that kind of thing a, a lot and so in a lot of ways it kind of feels like we have to look whether or not we're ultimate skeptics uh which there's a lot of reasons not to be it may be a, a not particularly helpful for a time in history when clearly things need to change or we're all going to eat it uh that uh uh that we still also have to just like get better at practicing what it means to be skeptical and i one of the people that that, that we were talking about um is is montaigne uh yeah. as an example of a kind of a, a softer gentler skeptic but one who's still kind of wrestling with these issues uh and again we, we talked about him and i thought he was like a, a much later figure uh because he seems so modern when you read him you know folks might not be that uh familiar with him but if you could just introduce something about him and why he's important to this conversation okay so it's hard to talk about montaigne because i love him so much um but yeah at the end of the 16th century he he he's the use okay so historically he's important because um, Sextus Empiricus's like outlines of Pyrrhonism, which is this important book, um, 
because not because uh, look when dealing with ancient sources we have this problem where a lot of the time you you, you read something not because it's uh, the most important of the time because it's what you have left right so this is this this is a kind of catalog of skeptical positions we have it's it's not a fun read but it well it is for me but um, anyway this appears in Latin Montaigne reads it and he publishes these essays um, Montaigne's essays uh, are like a world historical event and in it he he's clearly read these skeptical works he's clearly quite taken with them he introduces the word skepticism or skeptique into the french language he popularizes the school but more than just sort of spreading this historically he kind of is like a genteel skeptic and that he, he and he, you know he's, he's he's seeing these sorts of religious slaughters going on around him and it drives him to a kind of skeptical position but it's not austere. It's it's actually quite loving, and there's a kind of gentleness behind all of it, which is, I mean, I think really admirable. But it's also really thoroughgoing. He doesn't stop. You know, you have a kind of half-assed skepticism, which I like, but it ends with, and the most important thing is to be kind to one another. He doesn't have any of these sorts of axioms. He just clearly cares about people, and his way of avoiding. The sort of skeptical, the logical trap of, of asserting that I don't know anything, which is a contradiction, is to say, "Look, all I'm saying is I don't, I don't know anything, right?" But he's doing it in this very literary way. So he's not a man running around the agora in this kind of macho way looking for students. It's a much more gossipy, confessional sort of way of saying, "Look, I, I don't know anything. I really don't. But here's here's some things I've seen, and I'm going to talk about myself. I'm just going to talk about myself and what I've seen, and that's all I've got." And in a weird way, although now this kind of writing is pretty standard, it, it, it was, I think, quite explosive. I mean, the notion that you could write and reason and think and, and make, like, and, not, and show philosophical positions rather than argue them, um, and really take the wind out of everyone's sails, but not in a way where you're deflating them more just to bring them all down to earth. It was really quite lovely. And he in some respects is like the last truly great representative of this skepticism as a spiritual, spiritual practice um, school in the philosophical tradition, because immediate, almost immediately thereafter, maybe 60 years, uh, you have Descartes and skepticism is again, sort of remobilized and hardened for a very specific academic. And yeah. Have a Let, let's hold of off, yeah. Let's hold off on Descartes in the moment. Stay yeah. a little bit with Montaigne because he's so appealing. And, you know, it, it's totally worth like, don't worry about reading, you know, ancient sex, sexes or whatever. But if, you know, if you haven't read Montaigne, it's totally worthwhile because he's, he's very uh, familiar. It's like, you know him already. You know, these kind of characters, you get a sense of, of a real interesting person. But I, it's related to this issue about skepticism as a spiritual path, but even saying that it kind of implies this sort of like spiritual, like we're going to ascend or we're going to become perfect. Oh, no, 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 so no. Nothing that's what like I mean. That. No, no. But I mean, so let's just hone in. Is there something about that skepticism practiced in a life allows you to become clearer about what it is that you do 
No, maybe with a cap, with not with a capital K, but with a lowercase k. Things that you know based on your experience, based on your your own psychology. I know that I have a poor memory, you know. So he talks about his poor memory, and so it's like, wow, it's interesting. Like, what is the philosophy of having a poor memory? It's not really a philosophical place, but it's it's also something that's really intrinsic to your how you construct the world, how you think about the world. But it's also just like his, a feature, you know. Yeah, he talks about his kidney stones uh, and and the way they make him change how he thinks about things. He's uh, he talks about going to the bathroom and how to like ensure like, and like how, if he hasn't taken a shit, um, it upsets his thinking and like how to like fix that. It's really amazingly material. Um, but, yeah, but that's why, that's why it seems, it seems like, you know, I guess it's, it's probably an error of our moment to look for solutions. But yeah. what I, what I kind of enjoy about this model is that it, it feels to me that a lot of people are in kind of a crisis of skepticism or a crisis of doubt, but they're not very good at thinking about it and they don't have models of what it means. And so the easiest thing to do is to latch onto a system where you get to doubt a whole bunch of stuff and be really vociferous about it and really nasty about it. But the cost of it is that you have some other dogmatic uh, identification or, or you know, uh, assertion so that like if you take, you know, the really, sm- you know, some of these contemporary skeptics are very smart. They know their science. They know you know Bayesian decision theorems, and they're thinking about you know neuroeconomics and whatever. And there's some have some very sophisticated ways of criticizing uh, people's fuzzy thinking, and yet psychologically or even philosophically, it's almost all based on having a very deep and unquestioned uh, sort of assertion about what true rationality is or what science actually is same thing with the conspiracy theorists they doubt all the the mainstream media they doubt scientists whatever but it only if they're also able to be fully on board with the the lizards who run you know the united kingdom or whatever it is and and so what what i like about a figure like montaigne is that it's he's like look dude yes you can doubt there's a lot to there's a lot you don't yeah, know no, if, if any if anyone's going to look for a model a skeptic to model themselves on it yeah i, I would definitely say montaigne i mean if anyone listens to this and reads montaigne i'll, I'll be happy um <laughs> but yeah look i mean most skeptics they start with a kind of a line or a division a presupposition and then they move from there and he doesn't really he just starts with his book with like i'm just going to talk about myself um and he doesn't say, I don't know anything. He says, he just says, look, what do I know? Like he, he replaces statements with questions and not in that annoying way where someone, you know, they're like, I just want to have a rational conversation. And then they use this sort of conceit to bully people. He actually, he doesn't even always want to talk. Um, and, and I think that's, that's key too. Like not all the skeptics were loquacious. Uh, some of them enjoyed being quiet. Well, that, that's um, even one of the principles is, is, is not, is not speaking. And again, you find the same kind of thing in, in, in Buddhism. You find the same gestures yeah, sometimes. I, 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 don't, I don't get that at all. I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever been quiet in my life. So, so, uh, <laughs> you're, not, you're not expected to fulfill all functions. Yeah, you know, I think for me, that's, that's a hard, that's a hard hill to climb, but, <laughs> but let's say something like, yeah, I mean, he, Montaigne, if you want to say there's a vision of human nature there at all, he's like, look, the point of humans is to inquire into things, not to know things, right? Every time you know something, you're, you're sort of like, knowing is fine, I guess, but like, that's not really what you're for, um, according to him, I think. And so, and he thinks everything is, is moving and in flux. Um, even a rock is just moving very slowly. Um, and so making claims about things is trying to stop time. It's like, it's like taking a picture. 
and you know, it's a fine picture. He won't say don't take pictures, but he will say, you know, it's, you're missing a lot. Right. Um, and so for him, a truth claim relates to something in much the same way, like a photograph relates to like a real person. Um, so and, now here's a, here's a question. Here's a question. Yeah. So and it, it's, it comes around to st- things I've, I've mentioned already is that, do you think, okay, it's definitely possible to be that kind of skeptic of admitting what you don't know. And in a way that then supports religious ideas, you know, and that's something that we see at this time, you know, we see, especially later with the counter-reformation, once you have kind of the emergence of, you know, enlightenment, there's more confidence in, in, in what's emerging as science. And then when, you know, the Catholic church is like, whoa, this, this is a little too challenging for me. They absorb a lot of, of skeptical arguments as a way of, of undermining the kind of claims of, of reason and, and humanism uh, in, in order to kind of support the, the kind of church. And so in a weird way, it's like we feel it feels like we're kind of trying to sketch a middle way where you're, you're not, you know, you're not falling into that, but you are, uh, but you're still, you know, really, uh, you know, really questioning the kind of assertions. How did Montaigne relate to religion in this context? You know, when people are starting to wonder what, how do we think about religion if we don't actually believe these ideas anymore, but what do we really know? How, how does, how does skepticism relate to that kind of crisis of faith? Well, his way of doing, I mean, he's watching these like slaughters, right? These very, and neighbors are killing each other, right? It's not like just war, like you're, you're attacking the guy over the, the other side of the river. You're killing your neighbor. And so he, I mean, a lot of thinkers are trying to figure out ways of tamping down this violence. Um, for him, I, I don't know if I'd be comfortable saying I, I, and uh, look, he, he, he does want to say something like, look, you can, you can rationally inquire into any religion, but it's only going to get you so far. Um, and to a certain extent, you have to be sort of fairly humble. Watch your behavior. If your behavior is sort of grotesque, it, it's not that exciting. That's sort of what's interesting about it. He doesn't really hold a very radical position. And I think you see the Catholic Church, from the little I understand, trying to absorb these skeptical positions, less so the Protestants. I think there's less skepticism there um at least in his environment but i but i don't know i don't i don't want to sign my name on that check but yeah i mean he, he his his goal is something like humility but also a recognition that you're going to stick with the traditions you're born into um and that's not necessarily the worst thing as long as you don't you know kill people because <laughs> and you see this with all the skeptics they all say they're they're actually not anti-traditional um, because they're like, look, I don't know what I'm doing. Like the traditions as good as anything else. Right. It's not, uh, you know, when you see these so-called skeptics raging against flat earthers or homeopathy or something, and they sort of embarrass themselves, um, with this sort of rage bringing to bear, you know, 2000 years of thinking on a, a very weak opponent. Um, Montaigne, I think would not approve of that. I think he, he's a bit more on the, you know, I would just say he's looking for something closer to humility, um, intellectually. But I don't know. How do you read it? What do, no, what do that's, you... that seems that seems very good. I mean, I do, I do think, and that's part of that. Uh, what does it mean to really take on not knowing? And it doesn't mean you you don't respond to a news item you read, or if you you know you have to make a decision. You you know, it doesn't mean you can't do that. But there, it, where you're coming from, I think is is a really powerful thing. And and one of the things that that. I don't know, aggravate isn't even the right word that puts, sends me sometimes into despair about contemporary 
discourse is that it's it's more and more clear to anybody paying attention that we don't know what the fuck is going on on so many levels and and yet rather than try to like work within that not knowing and acknowledge the limits of what you know and work together to either overcome them or process whatever it is instead you have a kind of hysterical overreaction of knowingness everybody knows they know that they're crisis actors they know that the russians were you know you know controlling the election they know this they know that and there's so much of this kind of uh, uh sort of anxious brittle knowing um yeah that- there's a lot of, of this what irritates me more although because i get that a little bit look everyone's scared i'm scared you're scared and so there's a certain kind of like you know, and I, I feel better when I feel like I know what's going on. Um, and so I definitely personally like pretend to know stuff. I don't know. Not like, like I, I convince myself, I know things I don't know all the time. I think what I really don't like is when someone doing that will then suddenly try to make a skeptical move or pretend that they're open or pretend that they're questioning, but only just to destabilize their opponent. Um, that kind of annoys the shit out of me. And I see that all the time in these discussions, right? Like someone knows that global warming is a farce. And part of that move is like, well, you don't know, you can't trust scientists. You don't blah, blah, blah. You can't trust big pharma. You can't trust this. Um, or, you know, let's, we don't have to pick on that group. We can pick on any group. Uh, I, I see this pretty much across the board as these very tactical skepticism. Right. And then, but then when it comes to their source of information, then there's a different kind of. And that irritates me. Cause if you're going to be a skeptic, you really, you need to do it to yourself and you probably shouldn't tell anyone you're doing it. You shouldn't brag about it or act like impressed because that itself is a move too. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, Montaigne again, just, he's like, what do I know all the time? Right. And it's, it's a good question to like ask yourself or just, you know, even just end more or less every proposition with like, I don't know, but what do I know? Right. Um, and not like, Oh, that's just how I feel because that's another kind of fake skeptical move. I see a lot of people like, well, to me, or I feel and really, you're just trying to reground everything in your feeling. Um, and he, again, it, it, he's just like, I don't know, what do I know, right? It's an important, and there's something conservative about it. And, uh, you know, I understand that that sort of freaks people out about skepticism. It's it's conservative in a sense, because it, it's, you know, sometimes to challenge something, you have to be like, no, no, I know. Like, I know that people shouldn't be starving in the streets. I know X, I know Y. And, and I get that, but, you know. Uh, at the very least, this like tactical skepticism uh, makes me crazy, and the pride people take in thinking they doubt things. Uh, again, I don't think I doubt much. I mean, I, I would like to be more of a skeptic, um, but it, it's very hard for me, and I, I'm assuming it's hard for most everybody else. But especially, there's a certain guy that you're talking to him, and he just refuses. Like, 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 yeah, no. well, you know what I'm talking about. We all know. Yeah, yeah. Person. I mean, that, again, that's sort of what, what makes Robert Anton Wilson such an interesting figure. If, if you know, not fully satisfying as a philosopher by any stretch of the imagination, and he made all sorts of mistakes by his own terms, and you know, he had. Uh, over beliefs in the paranormal that don't really stand up very well. And, you know, it wasn't like he was like a pure skeptic. But what was interesting about him is that, again, a lot of his arguments are resonant with a more contemporary sense of, of scientific skepticism. And yet they didn't stop there. And it was also coupled again, like you were talking about before, where there's a there's a sense that it's happening inside of a particular person, that his particular uh, personality, which was kind of a, a warm, mischievous 
down to earth, salty dog, uh, kind of, you know, both a bullshitter and no, and a no bullshitter, um, really informs the whole kind of worldview and the politics of it are also very interesting as well, because, um, while he was in no way a, a, a conservative, he was also in, in not a, a, you know, like utopian liberal. I mean, he did become kind of a transhumanist. He was very much looking towards the future as a, a, a place of transformation where things would become possible that weren't currently possible. But for the most part, it, it was really like, how do you, you know, and you get that sense with him too, because he really manifesting these things or is he just gesturing towards them? And it's somewhere in between if you, if you follow his, yeah, yeah. his work closely, but it's, but it's, it's an admirable way of how, how to say this, maintaining the free thinking quality of yeah, inquiry. So it keeps you loose. I, yeah. I remember once I was in the middle of a kind of political crisis in a fairly intense, um, time when I was teaching in Israel and Palestine. And, and I, I felt bad cause I was sort of like looking after myself for a minute <laughs> and you sometimes feel bad in times of crisis, which I mean, now I think it's basically all the time. And, uh, you almost can feel guilty trying to saying, like, Oh, well, I'm, I'm aiming for like some kind of inner calm or inner peace. And, you know, you're surrounded by industries that, uh, you know, feed off this and the kind of grotesque, gated community inner peace and all these sorts of disgusting things and it can it can make you sort of hard and bitter and sort of gross and this kind of skepticism can be a way of giving yourself space to sort of loosen up get a little limber think in a more sort of you know freer and maybe more generous manner and i think it's worth risking a bit of conservatism here yeah Uh, in order to just like yeah hit this state you're describing because Right now, I think it's almost like a moral obligation to detach a little bit from what's happening um, and sort of take a bit of a stretch. Uh, some people do this physically, but I, I don't like to move, so so I'm never going to like do that. But certainly, uh, skepticism is, in this old sense, or in this Montaigne sense, is a way of, of achieving a more generous position. Yeah, um, and, I, and I think another feature of it that, that makes it less... Well, in some ways, I guess it's conservative in the sense that you're not like, you know, joining a party with a particular ideology, but but it's not like conservative, like go back to, you know, the old values. Oh, God, uh, no, 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 no. No, right. No. But but the part that really, again, appeals to me that, that we mentioned before, but just to reiterate is, is that if you start going along these things, if you really use these questions, these, these conceptual questions to see how deep the problem is, how deep the rabbit hole goes, then one of the only things you can possibly do to, to, uh, to inquire about positive values is to become more aware of your own experience. Doesn't mean it is what it seems to be. Doesn't mean it's not critiquable. Doesn't mean it's even happening the way it seems, you know, it, it, even on your, on a pure phenomenology. But if you start asking questions on that level, it creates some ballast. And that's one of the things that I think we're, we're lacking now is it's so easy to become completely unbalanced and, and knocked out of any kind of existential center. Even if that existential center is difficult, scary, uh, confusing, um, anxious, like it has those characters, characteristics to it, especially today. But there's still also a kind of invitation that 
in paying more attention to your own experience and acknowledging that you don't know and you're not going to be able to know about a lot of these really pressing issues that we nonetheless spend all our time reading about and talking about, et cetera, et cetera, that if you really let that that knowledge seep in, in a sense, you have no choice but to take some kind of rest or some kind of grounding uh, in your own experience in a way that I think in turn opens a gap, a space of looseness, a space of possibility, and also a, a space of physical being and interaction with the world around you, the people around you. The key is, I think, is if you're going to do that in this sort of skeptical way, you have to... Uh, Mendelssohn has this great story about his, his son looks in a pond and he sees a reflection. He's like, oh, look, like that's an illusion. That's that's a, like a lie. Like the, the pond is sort of lying to me. Like I, Because I, the, the person's not in the pond. It's a reflection. It's an image. And he's like, no, you, you idiot. It's, it's that you, the, the implications you draw from the, the illusion of the person in the mirror. So if you say that person in the mirror is real, that's a falsity. But, you know, the person in the mirror is just a person in the mirror. It's just, it's, just, it's an image, right? So you have to not draw it. it. It can be a fun exercise. I was trying to do it uh, yesterday. It's actually quite hard to, to doubt your experience in the sense not of being like, oh, I'm not seeing what I'm seeing, but just to draw literally no conclusions from from what's happening to you and make no claims about it. It, it can be actually quite, quite intense and, and then sort of, I don't, I'm going to sound like a hippie, but I, I think it's uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's real value to this, right? Not focusing on your experience as something that gives you authority. You know, my experience is this, but more just, you know, exactly. retreating even from that. Yeah. yeah now, retreating yeah. from that. It's very difficult for, for us now. I think uh, it's difficult for me, at least I always am looking to like ground things. So I'm always, when I experience something, I always want to, draw a conclusion from it or, or, or use this as like a piece of evidence in something. And, and it's very important that if you do this sort of skeptical retreat to experience, you can't use your experience as evidence for anything. Um, you can't make any claims. Uh, you see a door. Is there a door? I don't know. I just see a door in front of me. That's all. That's, that's all I can say. And, and it's, you know, there's a, it's, it's no coincidence that Husserl and these early phenomenologists take up these terms like epoche um, as, as a ground for this sort of way of thinking and what it can open you to. Now, there's limits to it. Like I said, like, but but to retreat just one sex, I know I'm blabbing on, but I, but I always do. Um, no, we're just about winding up anyway, so just go for it. So, okay, maybe skepticism is slightly conservative, but what it isn't is reactionary for this reason, Right. Because you're not giving yourself anything to react to. So it's not, I want to go back to the past. And it's not a, I would say right now, reactionary politics is far more dangerous than conservative politics. Um, And reactionary ways of thinking are far more toxic than conservative or um, centrist. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. All right. Well, that's a whole other set of questions that we won't have time for today. But uh, uh, Dustin, thanks so much for, for coming on and talking about the uh, ye old skeptics. All right. Thank you for having me. All right, folks. Uh, until next week, keep your minds open. 